So we are talking about, uh, in lesson 15, the idea that uh, we are to disciple our children. So the lesson title is Growing in Godly Disciplines. When you first see that, if you were to look in the chapter and see Growing in Godly Disciplines, you might say, wait a second, we already talked about discipline. Is this another chapter on discipline? Not not exactly what it means. Uh, and this key concept here helps us understand better what it means, you know, the similarity with the word disciple and discipline. Um, we're charged with training our children to be followers of Jesus, in other words, to disciple them. And as a result, um, we we need to teach them what uh, we often hear referred to as spiritual disciplines. So that's really the focus of this chapter. And uh, so let's let's walk through a couple preliminary ideas first before we get into. We've got three main points in it. I'll give you those ahead of time. So uh, we're going to talk about some preliminary things here, some four keys to to helping instruction take root. That's the first point. Eventually, we'll get to point two pretty quickly, actually, which are talking about the spiritual disciplines. And then the last point is uh, what kind of fruit, what are we looking for those to produce in our children? So we have an idea of what the targets are, and that's seven, seven vital signs of a true disciple. So starting off with the four keys to instruction taking root. So there's all this time and thought we're putting into how do we train children. And uh, there are some important principles for us to understand if we really want to be effective in that. And that's what we mean by instruction taking root. And the first one of those is something we all know. It's it's a very commonly repeated principle, and that is repetition aids learning. And uh, Betsy does a good job in the chapter talking about different ways to reinforce um, the things from God's word, the, the concepts we're trying to teach them. And it really goes with, you know, what the, all the way back in your Old Testament in the first part of uh, our Bible, where we read God's instruction to the parents in Israel. And they were to memorize God's word. They were to write it on the doorposts of their house. They were to wear it on their clothing and uh, talk about it when they're walking down the street with their kids. And the, the picture you get there is, God's word and the principles we learn in it are to permeate life. And that's, that's this idea of repetition aids learning. Um, you know, my daughter's not on the call right now, but if I were to repeat the phrase, uh, Julie will know what I'm talking about. Um, anytime a kid said life's not fair, what, what did we always teach them to say? Are you muted? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, we, we would teach them to say, or we would answer them, uh, that's, that's true. Life's not fair. Praise the Lord that we don't get what we deserve. And, you know, it was introducing a gospel principle, but we said it all the time. So we, it was like before they would, when they got older, before they would even finish the sentence, they'd stop realizing what the answer is going to be. And things like that, you know, having key principles from God's word, the, the kinds of things you're trying to teach your kids. And we'll talk about those later. But having those concepts woven into how you live your life, so you're you're repeating it in the way that you demonstrate it and model it. You're repeating it in the way that you say it. You're repeating it in the way that you talk about topics that come up, whether it's something they experienced at school that day 
or a movie you all watch together or music you're listening to that you relate all of life to how God says to look at life. And that's repetition that helps these principles to sink in. The, uh, the second key concept to helping instruction take root is remembering that experiencing consequences makes it real. Um, and we've talked about this before, so I won't belabor it, but it can be very tempting to shelter our children from the consequences of their wrong actions. And in fact, to sometimes insulate them so much so that, that they never have a chance to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, there is no better time, as I've said earlier in an earlier lesson, for our children to make a mistake and learn something the hard way than when they're under our care and protection and we can we can help head off those decisions that would be devastating and allow them to feel the consequences of things that are easily recovered. And yet they have that experience and it helps the truth we've been trying to teach them to take seed in a way that it couldn't if they'd only read it in a book. So experiencing consequences makes it real. And it proves, essentially, it too, it proves to them, we've been telling them God's way is best. And then when they deviate from God's way and they feel the pain that's built into that because we live in God's world, then they see proof that God's way is better. And uh, that that kind of impression lasts for uh, a lifetime. The third one is discipleship. Or, yeah, discipleship does not have to be formal, but it does need to be intentional. And uh, I was very, uh, very pleased to see them introduce this concept. Those are my words, but I'm summarizing a section from the chapter. Um, but to see the concept introduced that there are all kinds of ways you can be weaving, as I said in the first point, God's word and its principles into life. Um, is it a bad idea to have a weekly or regular, more frequent, even daily, uh, just whatever frequency works for your family, time where you all sit down and read together and look at God's word together? No, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, depending on your family dynamics and jobs you have and the natures of your children, that can be uh, more of a challenge or less of a challenge. But so every family doesn't have to do it the same way. Um, and, and by that, that's what I mean when I say it doesn't have to be formal, but it does need to be intentional. It does need to be something you think about regularly and that you're always actively trying to accomplish. So, so that as you talk with your children, um, your thought processes about school and work and government and friendship and familial relationships and leisure activity, everything. Your thoughts are not disconnected from who God is and how he's made us and the mission he made us for. And because your thoughts aren't disconnected from it, your conversation with him always freak, you know, regularly loops back and connects to it. And, and that's how we help our kids see that what God tells us is practical and a part of real life. It's not just this thing we carve out, we give it its own little box and we have you know, this one time a week where we sit down and do this or where we go to church. It's much more than that. So when we, when we take pains to make discipleship intentional, we communicate that to them, even if we have a difficult time establishing uh, a formal um, method 
like a regular study uh, where you sit down and all read something, everybody in one room, you know, maybe you do it with, with each child separately because the kids are so different. Um, so lots of ways to do it. The fourth one is success in discipleship is founded on God's love for and drawing of our children um, rather than on our discipleship skills. I think I'm missing a word there, but your success in discipling your child is based on the fact that God loves them and God is drawing and God's working in their life. It's not on your ability to be the most skilled discipler and praise the Lord for that. <laughs> so God's at work in your family and in the life of your children. And so uh, he doesn't require great skill and uh, multiple degrees in biblical subjects. He requires faithfulness that you uh, love him and you, you want to learn of him and you want to pass that on to your kids. And he uses that. And I've seen that over the years, uh, more times than I can count, uh, parents who may not have much opportunity for education and may not be the best students themselves, but they love the Lord. They respect his word and they, and they prioritize it in their lives. And the, to see the impact that that has on their kids, um, you know, you see that enough times, you see the pattern there. That, that that is effective. So those are just a couple key concepts. Repetition aids learning. Experiencing consequences makes it real. Discipleship doesn't have to be formal, but it needs to be intentional. And it doesn't depend on your skill so much as God's love and his work in your children's life. So with that foundation, then let's talk about the spiritual disciplines. That's main point number two there, spiritual disciplines. And first, let's talk about their purpose. Um, three things that you should keep in mind why these things are important, why the Bible advises us, tells us to, to live with these things as a priority. The first is that they graduate a child, they, they progress a child down the path of dependence, from dependence on human authority for navigating life's choices. So they, they progress the child past the point of depending on human authority in order to navigate life's choices because mom and dad, we've said this already, you're not going to always be there to help them make the right decision. And what you're trying to do is, is you do want to instill respect for human authority as we talked about, but you want to help them go beyond that to where they are um, they are looking for God's will by going directly to the revelation he's given to us, to them, in his word. So that's that's the first part. And this is what you want to do. This is what you want to produce. You want to take them past just depending on human authority and cultivate in them the ability to discern for themselves what pleases the Lord. Cultivating the ability to discern what pleases the Lord. And then thirdly, instill a willingness to submit to God's authority in all things. So they start off entirely dependent on you say, mom says, because because I say so, says dad, moving them through the point of being able to look into God's word, discern what the truth is, and then thirdly, have a desire to submit to what God says and to live his way because they know it's best. They believe God. So that's the point of these disciplines. So let's talk about um talk about them and i've 
summarize them. Let me ask you guys for feedback before I jump into them. So uh, I've kind of summarized them in the way I've taught them over the years to youth group uh, in five categories, but we frequently think of three things when we talk about spiritual disciplines. And uh, those things fit, I think, multiple times in these other categories that I've got. But can anybody tell me what the three things are? What are the three things you think of when you think of spiritual disciplines? Or maybe just two even. Anyone? Bible reading, prayer, and church attendance. Okay, there you go. Julie, you get it. Give Julie a little star right there. (laughs) Iron forehead. Pastor Rich, you get runner-up. I saw you were going to give You had them too. I saw you pressing for the mute button. (laughs) Yeah, so those are are the key. Those those are activities. So studying the word, um, prayer, studying the word. We'll teach kids oftentimes that's God talking to us and us listening. And then prayer is us talking to God. And then... um, you know, faithfulness, church attendance, that encompasses a lot of things having to do with worship and fellowship. So let's, let me show you how I've broken them down for the kids over the years and talk a little bit about each one and uh, see if we can use these as categories to help us think about areas to grow our kids in. So the first one's discipleship. And I know that's the title of the whole lesson, but um, discipleship is this really actually corresponds nicely too to our mission as a church. You know, what's, what's the first part of our mission as a church? To learn about God. And then we have love him and others and live for his purpose. And then we file a lot of these other things under those three things in our mission statement. So there's different ways you can slice these up, but we're talking about the same things over and over again. So with discipleship, what I'm talking about is things like personal Bible study. So, um, Psalm, 119, 9 and 10. Um, I meant to put this one on a slide and I forgot to. Let me pull it up here and read real quick for you. Psalm 119. Nine and ten. So nine and nine says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with my all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. So the the idea that you would personally be looking at God's word regularly, trying to understand what it's saying and incorporate it into the way you're thinking um, is critical. And that's, that's a key part of discipleship. So there are different ways we can go about getting that done in the lives of our children. We can help them by, um, when they're really little, reading it with them. When they get a little older, getting them, you know, a kid's Bible that has pictures and summarizes things and in small statements that allow them to try to read for themselves. As they get older, helping them, providing study aids, maybe Bible study um, guides that they can use, going through it as a family. Um, but also uh, exposing them regularly to the teaching of a shepherd. So making sure that they're under sound Bible teaching at a Bible-believing church. Um, and then in addition to the Bible study and being exposed to Bible teaching, helping them commit to memory as they're able. And everybody has differing abilities with that. Um, I'm a really poor memorizer. Um, but if you go to a university and major in Bible, they don't care. <laughs> they make you learn them all and they 
they grade you on them and they fail you if you don't get them. So, so I've had to learn a lot of scripture and man, it's been really good for me. And for me, I think that's what it required was going and getting a, a degree in, in biblical studies, but not every kid, more, many kids are like me in, in lieu of a, a college course of study on it. It may be harder for them, but doing what you can do with them, you know, encouraging by example, committing. In fact, the the best way I found over the years for me to memorize is simply reading and rereading. The more I understand it, I guess the kind type of learner I am, or my wife could tell me all about that. I don't know uh, as much about how all that works, the different theories of how people learn. But um, the way I learn uh, apparently is the more I understand the concept, the easier it is to remember. So the more I read a book, the more I get what Paul's saying in that letter, the more naturally I remember it. So doing whatever it takes to help them make what God says in his word a part of how they think. So discipleship, personal Bible study, scripture scripture memorization, uh, regular teaching from a faithful shepherd who preaches God's word. That's the first one. The second one is worship. It flows out of that, just like in our mission statement. We learn about God, which promotes us loving him and others. And, and that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about worship here is that, that expression of love to God, recognizing who he is and his worth and, uh, you know, the kinds of activities that we want to cultivate in our kids that promote this, uh, this behavior of worship in their lives is things like personal prayer. Um, you know, James talks a lot about the importance of prayer and the effectiveness of prayer. Um, but that that's something that is really it's the essence i was talking with one of our college students yesterday it's the essence of faith of following christ you know we have for me i've always found it very easy to look at the facts of what the bible says and what history shows us and um and what i know of myself and the world and go hmm yeah seems like uh, makes sense that we were created we're, we're not all just an accident seems kind of intuitive to me. And, um, you know, the Bible tells me I'm a sinner and I'm in need of rescue. Yeah, that, that fits. <laughs> and I, you know, I find all that objectively easy to believe. Um, but the part that's always been more difficult for me is, okay, this God who created everything that I find very easy to uh, believe in, uh, and to, to trust that he would want what's best. He actually cares when I talk to him. That to me just blows me away. And, and oftentimes it, presents its own struggle. I find my theology presents a struggle in me being faithful in prayer. I mean, he, he already knows what I'm thinking, right? And I'm just a little me. Why why does he want to hear from me? And uh but God invites us to to come to him in prayer. So that's a key part of worship. And then um corporate worship and corporate prayer that we're regularly with God's people participating in that, that we're expressing uh as one voice with God's people that he is worthy and that he's, uh, that our praise is directed to him. So, uh, so discipleship, worship, and then the third one, fellowship. And, uh, this involves several key aspects. Uh, one of them is commitment to membership. Um, you know, fellowship isn't just that we regularly talk with other Christians, but it's that we are, you know, that, that idea of fellowship in the New Testament is being connected to one another. And that's what 
participation in the local church is about, that we are connected. We're a family. Uh, we are God's family. Like our, our slogan on our website says that we're, uh, the family of God built on the word of God to the glory of God. And so a commitment to membership and then regularly participating, not just joining on a piece of paper, uh, though that is important and sometimes undervalued, but going beyond just the piece of paper and being involved in doing what the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, you know, we often, and especially in time like this where we're, our meeting methods are restricted, we immediately think of the second part of that that says not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. And that is important. It needs to be our regular practices that we, as we gather with God's people, um, and we're a part of that body. But we oftentimes overlook the whole point of that, which is the verse 24 leading into it says that we are to provoke one another to love and good works. And then it's got this statement that says, uh, it's kind of a, almost a parenthetical. So don't, don't give up meeting together regularly. Like some have started the habit of giving up. Uh, but encourage one another. So there's really kind of three commands there. And then one assumption, the commands are, well, it's two commands, provoke one another to love and good works and encourage one another. And the assumption is you can't get that done if you're not getting together regularly. And so committed to membership, provoking one another to love and good works. Part three flows right out of that regular assembly with God's people uh, in whatever method we can. Some people are sick and homebound and they can't. But even Lori Andrews, for example, Pastor Ken and I regularly visit with her. Um, several of our ladies from the church uh, uh, visit with her regularly. So she's a member of our church. She can't come to our meetings regularly, but she regularly gets together with God's people. And then she also watches online. She's very thankful that we have that now that she can see. So and us doing this that we're doing in our community groups on Sunday nights. And so that kind of thing's important, uh, whatever whatever we can be participating in. And then uh, growing out of that is encouragement and accountability. So those are all the kinds of things we're talking about when we talk about fellowship, commitment to membership, provoking the love and good works, regularly assembling and encouraging and account and holding each other accountable. And then number four is service or ministry. That's ministry actually means in the word in the New Testament, it's the same word for service or servant. And this is service, whether formal or other. Uh, and really, you know, we teach in our new members class that you should be involved in both kinds of service, that um, you should have some form of ministry that you're committed to, that you're dependent on to do, and that you regularly participate in. And then also being available to serve in other ways. You know, so one might be like, you know, being an usher or being on our prayer team or being... Uh, a t- Sunday school teacher, that would be more formal. It's a commitment you've made. You, you, you know, if you don't do it, it will be left undone and people will notice and something will be missing. But then there's other ways where, you know, like the people who go visit with Lori Andrews, who are, we're actually in the process of formalizing that ministry. Um, but for a long time, it's just been informal and ladies, uh, who've seen that she has a need and befriended her and, and made it a point to encourage her. Um, and the key there is just like we teach in, in membership 101 is using the gifts God's given us for the benefit of the body. That's why God's given gifts. You know, you look at the passages in the New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians talking about, uh, to each one, uh, 
they should serve according to the grace that they've been given. And he talks about for the benefit of the body that we weren't given gifts for our own benefit. You know, I, I wasn't given, this is a total joke. You know, it's not true. If you've ever heard me sing, I wasn't given a beautiful voice so that I can enjoy it in the shower as I sing. And I can pick that one cause I don't really have it. But, uh, if I was given a beautiful voice, it's so that I can use that in, in ministry and serving the body. If I've been given skills of some kind, uh, working with my hands or, uh, an ability to communicate, whatever it is, I should try to use those gifts that the spirit has bestowed on me for the benefit of the body. So that's, that's number four service. Um, not, uh, well, there's, I, there's a whole section of class I spend on that. I'll, if you want those notes, I'll get them to you or sign up next time we do membership 101. It's really a good thing to have a refresher on. Um, but then the fifth one is mission. And this is related to ministry, but it's, it's bigger. It's what we were talking about at the very beginning. It is seeing all of life through the lens of God's overall purpose. You know, why has God made us? And then further, why did he save you? You know, he made us, we rebelled and then he rescued us. Why has he done that? And, and why has he done that and not just zapped us up to heaven immediately? What are we here for? Uh, we have this section in the teens curriculum that we teach that is called, what on earth are you here for? <laughs> and that's literally the question. What, what are you here on earth for? And trying to look at all of life through that lens. And it helps with all kinds of things. You know, one of the things I taught the teens is, is that, uh, it's very common for people to find something they like to do. And if somebody questions it to say, well, what's wrong with that? And I've impressed on them. I've tried to impress on them as they go through our youth group that the better question to ask is with any activity we're going to participate in, any expenditure resources is to ask ourselves, how does this help my mission? Because there are all kinds of good things that there isn't anything wrong with that you might not have room for in your life if you're actually pursuing the mission. So if you're mission-oriented in the way you live, you'll say no to some good things because they just don't fit. And, uh, you know, people, examples like athletes, they do that all the time. And there is nothing wrong with um, eating a bag of chips. I don't know, that might be debatable. But <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're getting ready to compete in the Olympics, you say no to that kind of stuff because it's not promoting you getting closer to your goal. And so seeing all of life through the lens of God's overall purpose for us is how we live mission focused and uh in connection with that making life decisions based on our mission rather than on just temporal or cultural objectives so you know think about the way the agendas for our lives are set we how's it work you know you go to high school you graduate you go to college and then you get your degree on that you might get an advanced degree then you find a spouse you get married buy a house of course got to get a nice car uh, you want to, or I forgot before that you want to land a good job at right after college. Don't forget that part. And then you want to pursue career advancement. And so there's all these steps, these notches that our culture tells us we're supposed to do. And I'm not saying that those are bad goals. In fact, a lot of those are very logical, but why are we deciding to do the thing we're tr- deciding to do now? Is it because it advances our mission or is it because, well, it's just what you're supposed to do when you're 22 years old. Um, and you know, our culture may well steer us wrong if we just go by what everybody does. So we want to teach our kids to, 
to have the mission God's put us here for as the objective, as, as the determining factor. It's why we pick big things like where we live and little things like how we spend our allowance. And it's, it's an important question to ask all the time. So those are, those are the five purposes is what I, I call them when we've taught them in the youth group. But those are the categories that the spiritual disciplines fall into discipleship, worship, fellowship, ministry or service and mission. And if we think about those areas and try to be intentional, like we were talking earlier, if we try to intentionally steer our kids into, um, incorporating those categories into their lives, into the way they think, then we're going to be really helping them establish a good pattern to be a true disciple. And so what are we looking for then in them becoming a true disciple? That's, that's the, uh, oh, I think I, did I skip? Yeah, I skipped the main point. Sorry. It's supposed to say seven vital signs of a true disciple on major point three there. Forgot to make a slide for it. Unless did I, did I skip it? Nope, I didn't. <clears throat> so the first of those vital signs is profession of Jesus as Savior. And I, you know, that goes, I think, without saying Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. I put the reference there for you. Um, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you profess and are saved. So that's, that's the first step. And, uh, they, they did a good job. Betsy did a great job, I think, explaining in this chapter and in a previous chapter that, um, you don't want to, little kids especially are going to be very eager to please you. And when they're taught, when we teach them that they need to profess Jesus as Savior, they're going to want to do that. You know, one, they believe what you tell them. You're all the world to them. And, Two, they want, they want to make you happy and they know that, man, this would make mom and dad happy if I did this. But we want to be really careful that they understand this is not something we're pressuring them to do. This is not, uh, something they should do to make mom and dad happy. This is something that they should do because they believe it. And, uh, we're okay with them, um, making sure they understand it and are really comfortable deciding that. Uh, you know, you'll hear stories a lot of times of children who make a very early profession. And then later on in life realize that they didn't really understand it. And then, you know, so they may look at their, uh, their actual conversion as something that happened when they were older. And the, the reason I really appreciate Betsy's caution on how we present this to our kids is because the last thing we would want is for one of our children to hang their hope of eternal life on a prayer they said when they were very little that they don't remember and they didn't really understand rather than on who they're trusting today as their savior. You know, it's, it's about who, who am I depending on to be accepted before God? It's Jesus. And if I've never really made that decision to trust in him instead of my own works, my own behavior or some religious system, then, you know, I'm not really a believer and we don't want to give our kids a false anchor to put their hope in something other than Jesus. Uh, the second thing is, so that's the first vital sign. The second vital sign is confession of sin. The Bible says in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we often will quote that verse to somebody when we're explaining salvation, but that's not just talking about uh, the point at which you accept Jesus as Savior and become a believer. It's 
context is right before that in verse 8, it says that if we say we don't sin, we're lying and the truth is not in us. It's talking about believers. And the point is that we will sin still. We, we should try not to. We should be striving for a life free of sin because we've been rescued from it. We shouldn't dwell in it any longer. We're no longer slaves to it. But in all reality, John's recognizing we will sin. And if we think we're better than that and we don't sin, we're lying. But since we are going to sin, when we confess it, he's faithful and he's just. He's forgiven all of our sins and he'll purify us from that unrighteousness. So confession should be a regular part of And, and just one comment on this before I move off of it. Um, you know, our, our kids shouldn't think we're perfect. Uh, I'll tell you, when they get older, they know you're not perfect. <laughs> but when, when they're little even, we shouldn't make them think mommy and daddy are perfect because they need to understand that we're all sinners. And Jesus is the, Jesus is the solution to our sin, not hiding it, um, not pretending we're something we're not. So that's, that's number two vital sign. Number three is obedience to God's word. So the, the flip side of that, what John was saying that, um, you know, we, we will dwell in the light as he is in the light. In fact, in chapter two, verse three, starting there, he says, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. You know, he, he had already talked about in chapter one, nobody does it perfectly. So we shouldn't mistake here saying that you have to be perfect. But he does say that we know we know him if we keep his commands. In fact, he says, whoever says that I know him, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar. So if our regular pattern of life is that we disregard what Jesus says, then then our profession is a lie. And the truth is not in that person, John says. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So it's not talking about whether we sin one time or not. It's talking about the pattern of our life. Are we, are we living a life that is progressing toward obedience to God's word? And then number four is love for people. So obedience for God's word, I think encompassed in that is love for God. It even said that in those verses from first John, but that additionally tells us, uh, or the additional uh, sign is a love for people. And you can see again, overlap with our church mission statement. Um, learning about like God, loving him and others. John says in chapter four, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So pretty straightforward. If we say we love God, and our life is characterized by tearing other people down, building ourselves up by um, tearing others down or being dismissive or disregarding other people, then then we're lacking evidence that John says should be there if we're really a true disciple. The fifth uh, vital sign of a true disciple is rejection of worldliness. And remember here, we're talking about not merely specific behaviors, we're talking about values. Um, worldliness would be adopting what the world says is valuable versus what God says is valuable. This is what Titus says. Uh, Paul says to Titus, uh, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. 
It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And here's, here's the contrast. Here's why it teaches us that. Because it's while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from wickedness. So he, he gave himself up for us. The reason Jesus died is so we don't have to be enslaved by our sin anymore. So why would we dwell any longer? And it's almost a direct quote from Paul in Romans. <laughs> you know, if we've been freed from it, why would we dwell in it anymore? So that grace teaches us to say no. It's not obligation that teaches us to say no. It's not fear that teaches us to say no, that God's going to smash us if we disobey. It's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, teaches us to value what God values because Jesus came to make it possible for us to do that. He suffered so that we, so our desires could be made, be made new by the spirit. Um, and so that's, that's Titus 2, 11 through 14. And then number six is perseverance. Couple, couple passages I listed there for you. Second Timothy, Paul says, this is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know that, uh, Paul's talking about how he's been able to persevere in suffering. And he says, because I know whom I've believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So he's looking forward to the reward, to seeing Jesus face to face, to being told, well done, my faithful servant. And he's able to persevere because he knows that God is able to keep him. Uh, he actually points to God's grace in his life for this. Um, back in our letter of 1 John, where we've been going for most of these vital signs, in chapter 2, verse 19, we read, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So the Bible teaches that when someone is a true disciple of Jesus, they've been made new. Something miraculous and spiritual has a transformation has happened to them. And that changes one, one way. That change continues to progress until the end of our life. Um, so that's why, you know, you, you may have heard it talked about as, uh, eternal security of, of believers or, uh, maybe a better phrasing of it. Uh, is the perseverance of the saints. Somebody who becomes a Christian in truth will continue to grow. And it's sometimes it's a jagged path. You know, we're sinners. We do the sin that John said. So it's not all straight uphill at a nice pitch. Sometimes it's, sometimes it can be confusing if you're looking at a real small slice of it because it looks like it's going downhill. But the overall pattern of life is that the Christian perseveres. And then the last one, number seven, is growth. And uh, uh, Betsy draws out in particular in faith and discernment, and I appreciate that. Um, she talked about as well earlier the fruit of the Spirit. And, uh, you know, Galatians 5, 22 through 24 gives us those. Uh, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And uh, that is what's true of somebody who's being transformed by the Spirit of God. So these last two kind of go hand in hand. Um, I, I thought it was actually odd to see them in this order, perseverance and growth. I tended to think of them the other way, growth, and then perseverance is the ongoing continuation of growth. Uh, but she actually put them in this order on purpose 
and I think I understand why she did it. She was talking about, um, you know, the process of sticking with, uh, all of these spiritual disciplines that we talked about. And when you do that over time, that produces growth. So in the book, she actually, she actually, uh, impresses that order and purpose. Uh, but that, that is it really, uh, in this chapter is we talk about discipling your children. There's three areas, uh, that you really need to think about. One is you want this to be a permanent process. You want this to take root. So there's those four keys that I talked about at the beginning. And your primary tool in this is the spiritual disciplines. And I, I tried to break them down into those five categories that you want to think about as you teach your children and train your children, discipleship, worship, fellowship, service, and mission. And as you're doing that, these seven signs are what you want to be watching for. They're almost kind of like markers along the road that you want to uh, be watching for and then to teach your child to watch for in their own life. Because it's very encouraging when you do see those things being produced by the Spirit, you know that God's at work in your life. And that actually perpetuates then uh, the success of spiritual growth when you, you trust God more because you see what he's done in the past. And then your trust of him increases as you go into the future. All right. Any questions about any of that before we go into the uh, small group discussion?